in the morning when you need the news that matters most. We have a constitutional right to publish this story. We are the fourth estate and we will hold the powerful accountable. You need the front page. Wait, what's the fourth estate? Us, the press. And everyone knows that? On the press box. Because I feel like people always say the fourth estate, but they don't actually know what it means. I think everybody knows what it means. I thought the fourth estate was time. That's the fourth dimension. I thought the fourth estate was Georgia. With Graney and Bischoff. No, not state, a state. You thought I was saying we're the state of Georgia? Jim Fossil passed away last night. He died of a heart attack at the age of 71. Uh, I did not know Jim, but I know you uh, got to talk to him quite a bit over the last uh, few years. Yeah, I felt we arrived in Denver and I saw Sam Farmer tweet. I felt so bad. Uh, quick story from Jim. This will put it in perspective. Um, you know, he led the locomotives to a couple of UFL titles in Vegas. Got to know him really well. And I'll always remember this story. Jim uh, landed in Newark on 9-11. Uh, and the plane right next to his was one of the planes that went down. It was being flown by one of his high school teammates. Um, and Jim would tell me this story that for the next several days at 5.30 a.m. when he drove past a parking ride on his way to Giant Stadium, he always was surprised because there's never cars in that lot during that time. And it took him several days to realize the black car, the white car, the Mercedes, the blue car, they never moved. And he, it finally came over him, oh my God, those were the people in the plane. And it was just this eerie thing. Jim said when they were practicing for the next month or so, a plane would go over them and they would all stop and look up. His foundation uh, made the largest donation to the first responders, $250,000 of 9-11. He's got a plaque. Um, really, I, felt, I just felt bad. Uh, that 71, he'd have to go at a heart attack. We know John, his son, uh, is the cow works with the Cowboys special teams. And Jim was a really, really good guy. Came on our show with Clay and I many, many times. And I just felt bad. I, I uh, you know, rest in peace to Jim. He was a really good guy. And, and he was very good to the media in Las Vegas. I think anyone in the media who dealt with him said he was a terrific guy. So, so sad story. Yeah, I, I never did. But I, I, I feel like every news outlet in this city has at one point talked to Jim Fossil and just said, hey, yes. yeah, you, you want to come talk about football? And Jim, yeah, whatever. And he whatever would. It is. Yes. <laughs> Next question. So we didn't get to the other NBA game last night, but the Suns beat the Nuggets. And the most interesting part of this game to me was that Devin Booker didn't even really have to be awesome. I mean, he had 21 points, and I think it was like 8 of 12 shooting is what it was. But Mikhail Bridges had 23 points in that game. Uh, DeAndre Ayton had a 20-point game. Chris Paul had a 20-point and 10 assists double-double. And maybe more importantly, kind of like Giannis and Blake Griffin, DeAndre Ayton played Nikola Jokic pretty evenly in that game. Like, you wouldn't have walked away from that saying Nikola Jokic is the MVP and DeAndre Ayton is maybe an up-and-coming star. Like, you would have walked away saying those two players are about the same, and the Nuggets have no chance. They don't have much of a chance without Jamal Murray as is, but if DeAndre Ayton's going to play as well or better than Nikola Jokic, this series is over. Yeah, I... We'll see what happens. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen the, the Nets in two games. I mean, this was one game for Phoenix. They're obviously really confident after their last series and what Booker did. I still think this is going to be a really good series. I It'll it'll go longer in, in my mind, and I'm sure yours, than the other one, I would think, because uh, I think Jokic eventually will play, you know, a lot better than he did. 
but yeah, I mean, people are excited. I, you know, you read the stories about the atmosphere that's been like that in Phoenix for 15 years. And you remember back, whether it's Barkley or Marley or whoever, that place was rocking. It was one of the better atmospheres. Nash, when he was winning MVPs. So it's been a long time since Phoenix has felt this way, which is really cool uh, in terms of that uh, fan base. Uh, and I think they're they're a pretty confident team right now, man. Devin Booker's really confident kid. And uh, I think it's a fun team to watch. They didn't even need him last night. Mikhail yeah. Bridges was the star player last night. So it's it's going to be fascinating because if you're – if you're the Nuggets, you just you just lost a game in which your star player didn't play well, and Devin Booker, the other team's star player, didn't have to play well. And right. the Nuggets are going to win some games in this series, but yeah, it's it's not looking good for the Nuggets because, I mean, Mikael Bridges is going to go off on you? That's like, what, if Aaron Gordon for the Nuggets went for like 35 in a game? Like, that's probably not going to happen. I'm out. Naomi Osaka backed out of a German tournament uh, that was that's viewed as sort of a tune-up for Wimbledon, which is on June 28th. Uh, she had dropped out of the French Open after refusing to do press conferences. She had cited her mental health issues when doing so. And now it appears to be, she hasn't said anything, but appears as though she might be in doubt to actually play in Wimbledon later this month. Um, Ed, you were out the last uh, couple of shows when we talked about Naomi Osaka. So I'm curious just... You have somebody who's saying, hey, like, this is bad for my mental health. I don't want to do it. And then ultimately drops out of a major, drops out of a tournament because of it. Like, is there a solution for players that don't want to do it and don't think they can handle doing some sort of media press conferences versus, like, the leagues obviously realize, hey, it's important for us to have these for the media attention that you get for it. This is such a tough issue to me um, because I do think you have to have press coverage and I don't think you can make special rules um, to uh, Osaka uh, I feel really bad I have uh, people in my family with depression issues and mental health issues so you understand what it can how it can affect you know certain people in terms of they're suffering from these issues I don't think in the bigger picture you can allow, you know, you, you can it can be okay for some and not for others because then you get the other saying, wait a minute, why do we have to do press conferences? So I think in this instance, she probably did what was best for her and her mental health. And, you know, she you hope that she's okay and she gets, you know, whatever help she needs. But I think at the overall spectrum, you have to have press conferences and media coverage if you want your event to be covered. And then you just let people make their individual choices whether they want to compete or not. I, it, I just... I don't think you can, as Wimbledon, say, okay, whoever wants to do this can do it. Whoever doesn't want to do it doesn't have to do it. I, I don't think that works. No, you won't have nearly enough athletes no. that are actually no. talking, and you you lose the purpose of the press conference yeah. because nobody shows up. So I just I, – I don't know what the answer is because it feels wrong to force Naomi Osaka to do it when she's telling you this is adversely affecting my mental health. But right. it also, if if you are, if you're, you know, if you're women's tennis, the WTA, or if you're in any sports league, any sports team, you also look around and say, well, we, we need this to an extent. Like, we need to yeah. have the media coverage because it's the publicity we need to grow the sport. So I I don't know what the solution is. I, I have no idea what league should do when this pops up. And I, I don't know the tennis knows what to do either. I think that's why we're yeah. in this situation. That's crafty wording right there. I give you credit. <laughs> Tom Thibodeau was named NBA Coach of the Year. Uh, first off, Monty Williams, the coach in Phoenix, he actually got more first place votes than Tom Thibodeau did. 
But Thibodeau got an overwhelmingly majority of second place votes, whereas Monty Williams got voted third in some instances. So the cumulative total there gave it to Tom Thibodeau anyways. But my question is, why don't they announce these awards before the playoffs actually start? Like, because we're sitting here looking at like Monty Williams is in the second round. Looks like he's going to a conference finals. Tom Thibodeau lost in five and it's a regular season award, but it just looks stupid now because Tom Thibodeau won coach of the year, but won one playoff game. Yeah, I saw some tweets last night, you know, you know, get it together, NBA media, you know, Monty Williams deserved it. Well, you're saying that coming off Phoenix's win in, in the playoffs. You're exactly right. Um, if it's going to be a regular season award, and I certainly have no problem with it being a regular season award, it should. You have the votes in. You can count the votes fast. You know, say who the winner <laughs> is before the playoffs. Right? It's, I don't know why any of these, all of these aren't just announced in. It's not like you can't count the votes. Uh, it's not like you don't know who won. I have no idea why they wait for this. I have no, I have no problem with Thibodeau winning the award. I, I do think it probably, and this is you know not not a, a, you know a new theory that it hurts Monty Williams where he coaches compared to you know a guy coaching in New York, the Knicks, the publicity they got, the star power, all of that. I'm sure kind of made Thibodeau's uh, uh, candidacy a little stronger compared to coaching in Phoenix. And yet I don't have any problem with Tom Thibodeau winning the award. But you're right to to announce these when the playoffs have already started. To me, is absolutely silly. You're only going to get bad publicity on this because you're only going to get people who say, "Well, how can you do that?" Because look what the other guys doing in the playoffs. Right. It happened. What it happened last year, right? When Giannis won MVP, and they didn't announce it until after he got swept yeah. by the by the Miami Heat. Yeah. And it's like, ah, okay, like it's yeah. a regular season award. Let's get this stuff announced after the regular season, not in the middle of the playoffs when we are, it just looks bad. It's just a bad look because Tom Thibodeau won one game and oh, he's coach of the year. Okay. They kind of fell on their face once they got to the playoffs. What do you think? The Mariners sent Jared Kelnick back to triple a. Uh, he is the, was their number one prospect. I don't know if you're still a prospect once you get called up, but he was their number one prospect. Got 23 games in the majors, hit 096. 096. He was in an 0 for 39 slump when he got sent down. This is the same player that complained. Now, granted, he was proven right, but this is the same player that complained that the Mariners were manipulating his service time in the offseason. And then when he gets called up, he's hitting 096 in 23 games. I was going to say 0 for 39 slump. They should have manipulated the kid for a few <laughs> more years. Uh, to, to, you know, I mean, I, look, I it's too bad that he didn't hit at all i mean whatever we've talked about it with chris bryant i think that i understand by far the player's side of this the agent side of this but we you and i talked about the sport then get the rule changed i mean i it is they're taking advantage of what is in my opinion a stupid rule where they do get to manipulate a kid's time in terms of the minors but that's the rule if i'm running the cubs or the mariners and i think i can hold on to a guy who i believe is a top prospect more i'm doing the exact same thing yeah. I, I, I'm taking advantage of the rule and I'm keeping him, you know, where he needs to keep before he's a free agent and I'm going to manipulate the system. Uh, you know, and, and look, I mean, Bryant's going to usually uh, you know, ultimately be a UFA and he can decide, hey, I'm moving on. I didn't like what you did. I would hope after World Series and stuff, it's behind him. But yeah, I, I know why the teams do it. Like I said, if I'm a team, I would do it too. You would be dumb not to do it. Like at the end of the day, yeah, you're you're giving away a year of control on what could be. Now, granted, he had 096, but what could be a really good player. And if yeah. you're a team and you're able to control him under, have him under contract for one more season, you're stupid not to take advantage of that. Even if it's a crappy thing to do the players, but it's 
within the rules. It's not against the sure. rules, so you should absolutely be doing it. Next question. Mike Trout does not have a timetable for his return. Uh, he has been out since last month. Do you think he knows when he comes back he's just the second best player in baseball, Ed? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I was on the plane yesterday when I saw the first ba- first uh, top player in baseball miss a slider by 10 feet as he whiffed uh, against the Cubs. So I'm still thinking Trout. Uh, I still think Trout thinks he's the number one uh, superstar. Uh, he's won a three-time MVP. I'm waiting for the other guy to win one MVP. So we'll see if the, we'll see what happens this year. Trout has the juice. A guy told me that. Yes. The juice. Yes. Um, Cody Bellinger's back. Are you still mad at him? Uh, until he starts hitting consistently, yes, I will be. Um, he has not hit well at all. He's still he's not at the Mendoza yet. Uh, he had one home run and. Uh, He's, he's, he's not playing well to start. I mean, he's been hurt. Soft injury. Uh, I would have hoped he would have come back with more firepower after the soft injury. But, uh, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait and see. They're not they're not playing really well. They're scuffling around here a little. So, uh, they all sc- when, when Albert Pujols is getting praised for uh, knocking in both runs with a home run in a loss, I, I'm, I'm a little concerned about the, the lineup right now. Okay, I know that this isn't exactly what Ed's doing, but one of my favorite things in all of sports media is when the journalist calls the player soft (laughs) (laughs) because it's like all right yeah how how many uh how how many how many weights have you lifted today well none (laughs) but you need to work harder uh darn right i mean uh pete DeBoer can call calls soft so uh calls cody belger soft Jared, we need to start monitoring Cody Bellinger's like daily stats. So just so we can come on and say, Cody Bellinger, oh for four with two strikeouts yesterday. Just for Ed. Is he is he even in AAA or is he back? He's he's with the Dodgers. Oh, he had a, he had a, the Dodgers scored like a hundred runs in the first inning of a game, and he had like seventy five RBIs in one inning. And apparently that's the only thing he's done since he came back. Well, see, that's the problem. I can't grab any Dodgers highlights because they make Ed happy. I have to grab Padres highlights, and they. True keep screwing up they, they don't post highlights of cody bellinger striking out or anything no they don't oh and mm. you know what my favorite memory of cody bellinger is is in the world series of 2017 him swinging and missing on every curveball at his ankles for the entire series well it's because it was doctored up <laughs> you're the team that's cheating with well, doctored baseball they no, had I trash can not yes, doctor get, get your cheating straight ed i disagree we it, it, trevor bauer has not been suspended yet yeah. <laughs> well, they haven't figured out whether or not they're going to enforce the rules on the book. That's right. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not cheating until until there's it's a rule on the books. It's not cheating until they enforce them. Yeah, it's not cheating. All right. Coming up next, we'll get into the Raiders. And uh, did they have the worst offseason in the NFL? Our stats hogwash. Are you tired of hearing Tyler do math on the radio? Call the press box voicemail and let us know. 702-720-4678. We have 13,000 spots that are under our complete control, meaning we either own them, they're either on site here at lots that we've invested money and purchased, or that we have long-term leases with the property owners. Some of them have tailgating options, some of them don't. You'll get that information in a second. There's another 22,000 spots located on the resort corridor and in other businesses around this area, some of which have said, we're gonna handle parking ourselves, some of which we're gonna control. So again, we have 35,000 spots. We're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff. Be part of the conversation on the Finley Kia text line at 69187. Finley Kia, come see a Kia on West Sahara. 
Ed, what's going to be worse, parking to go to that Garth Brooks concert or sitting on a Southwest flight for two hours before oh, it takes off? It's brutal. It's brutal. I just, I just, I also just uh, tweeted to Jameson. The best, the best is we're early. Thirty <laughs> minutes later, oh, we finally have a gate. We're late. Okay. <laughs> It's a great. They they brag that they're early, which is great. And it's like uh, the uh, gate is occupied. Be there in a few minutes. Like 20, 30 minutes later, you feel the plane slowly moving towards the gate. And it's like, no, oh, you're late now. I mean, we were early twenty minutes ago, but now we're late. Okay. Uh, I do, actually I want to talk about this story from Pro Football Focus, who they basically took the second year players in the NFL, guys that'll be second year players in the NFL and identified which ones are under the most pressure to perform. And for an example, like Tua was number one on this list because Tua second year quarterback wasn't as good as Justin Herbert last year. Didn't look good at all. Ryan Fitzpatrick was like the relief pitcher to save their game. Sometimes they brought in a closer. Yeah. So like he wasn't that good last season, but there's still, the hope the Dolphins are counting on it too for him to be good because the Dolphins have a pretty good team and really it looks like they're a quarterback away. If two is good, the Dolphins will be good and could be legitimate contenders. If two is bad, the Dolphins have no chance. So that's sort of the idea of where they were going. Both Henry Ruggs and Damon Arnett were in the top 10 of second year players under pressure to perform. And I'm curious on the Henry Ruggs side, We talked about Julio Jones yesterday and how if this season plays out without Henry Ruggs being very good, how the Raiders, we can look back and say, well, you could have had Julio Jones for just a couple of draft picks. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on Henry Ruggs and and how much pressure do you think he's actually under this season? I think he's under a ton of pressure, right? He was the the first wide receiver in a class of maybe the deepest wide receiver class in, I don't know, they said decades. And we've talked about it before. Most everyone who went after him had a much better year. So I think he's under a ton of pressure. He's, he was supposed to be the guy that was going to be the difference maker. We saw, you know, a couple of instances of that where his speed got him some big plays. But I think he's, you know, what was he, picked 12th? Um, and Judy and all those guys and Lamb and all those guys after him were much better. I think he's under a ton of pressure. Yeah, if you look at where the Raiders were in that draft and what they needed and taking a wide receiver and not getting the production, it puts Ruggs under a lot of pressure. But I also think just from a standpoint of how good can this offense be? Because they they have a great tight end in Darren Waller, but they don't have a legitimate like second receiving option. And we're at a point in the NFL where you probably need at least three great receiving options or a top like three or four quarterback in the league. One of those two things and the Raiders, they they don't have a top three or four quarterback. So they need like two to three great receiving options and they really need Henry Ruggs to be that. I think, I think what's interesting is, is John Gruden under more pressure for Henry Ruggs performance than actual Henry Ruggs? Well, I gotta be honest. I, I don't know if John Gruden's ever under pressure for anything. <laughs> uh, I, and, and I'm not trying to be funny. I really wonder that he, you know, again, we none of us really know what 10 years means. I'm going to say that again. It probably means 10 years. I mean, you did have to take him out of a very comfortable position in the booth to make him come back to the sidelines. He was getting paid extremely well. Very little pressure comparative to being an NFL head coach. So I'm sure he told Mark Davis, I, give me this and I'll come back. I don't know if Mark Davis really said 10 guaranteed years, but let's just say he did. Let's just say he did seven or eight guaranteed years and you can get out of it then. 
he's not under any pressure right now. I mean, is he under pressure? And maybe this is why he's not talking as much because he does. He thinks the media is negative on him, whether it's the national or national media, whatever. He's hearing too much about how bad they are defensively. He's tired of all that. Maybe, maybe that's why he doesn't talk as much. But if Henry Ruggs is bad and he and Mayock continue to get ripped for the pick, I don't know if that puts him under pressure. I think the the, the player's under pressure more so than a guy who has that kind of security in his job. I mean, if he had one year left on his contract and they kept missing on draft picks and they missed on the 12th overall pick, yeah, I think he'd be feeling pressure. But I just, until someone proves me wrong, I don't think he feels pressure about anything. He has an ego, and I'm sure he cares about what people think, and maybe that's why he's not talking right now. But I don't think he feels any any pressure from like losing his job. Yeah, and the reason I, I ask about Gruden is is obviously they they haven't done well in the draft, and if Henry Ruggs isn't any good in his second year, you can you can basically write that off as a wasted pick to some regard as well. But beyond just the draft failures, is also the offensive construction this year. They have two question marks on the offense this year. One is self-induced by the offensive line by tearing it down and, and trying to rebuild it with Andre James and Alex Leatherwood. So that's one hole. But the other one is wide receiver. But they thought they filled it. They thought they filled it with Henry Ruggs. Hell, he's he's thought he's filled this three times, right? Like they signed Tyrell Williams. Right. They, they yeah. traded for Antonio Brown. And now they drafted Henry Ruggs. Like, They've been trying to fill the wide receiver hole I mean, since he traded Amari Cooper, and they haven't done it. So it, it, it might, it's not pressure in terms of his job security, but I think like the idea of Gruden as a personnel evaluator, Gruden as a roster constructor, like if Henry Ruggs doesn't work out, that's a lot of failures at one position. Yeah, ironically, and this is not what I think they wanted, even though you know he had a good year. I mean, let's be honest, ever since Amari Cooper uh, left, the best thing they've done at receiver was Nelson Aguilar. Yeah. yeah. And what does that tell you? Nothing against Nelson Aguilar. That's fine. He had a good season. But, you know, I'm sorry when you're signing big-name free agents like you and you're, you, like you said, and you're you're having the 12th overall pick as, as Henry Ruggs, and you can look back and say, well, Aguilar was pretty good. It's like, <laughs> that's not very good in the big spectrum of what you're trying to do. I think Aguilar in his one season has more combined yards than Tyra Williams, Antonio Brown, and Henry Ruggs. I he probably does. I think so. I think that's accurate. So, I mean, he doesn't have frozen feet, but he had a lot of yards. <laughs> so, like that—that that is like, and again, the bet, the, like you said, the best receiver they've signed since trading away Amari Cooper is a guy they signed for a million dollars because he couldn't catch in Philadelphia. Like, there's a right. reason Nelson Aguilar was so cheap. Nobody else wanted him, and that's the only thing that's been any good. They none of the guys they've actually thought were going to be good have been any good. All right, coming up next, Ben Goats joins us from just down the hall of Ed Grady. Uh reason he can create offense without being the fastest guy on the ice it's all hockey iq and uh angles and never putting yourself in in poor positions where you 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 were in a foot race because you didn't take a better angle um you know it's he's got elite elite hockey sense and uh you know that allows him to be that effective both offensively and defensively we're back to the Press Box Morning Show with Ed Graney and Tyler Bischoff. Joining us now from the Review Journal is Ben Goats. Ben, how far away are you from Ed? I don't know. I didn't see what the weird hallway Ed went down to get to his hotel room last night. All I know is that we are somewhere on the same 12th floor of this hotel, uh, just chilling in lovely Denver once again. It feels like we never left, uh, to be honest, and that's only because we had about three airport delays that kept us here some uh, extra time. 
I've got a uh, I've got an update there. So you know, we get three rooms, and we're all on the same floor. Myself, Ben, and David Shane. Ben goes to his room, and Dave Shane and I continue to walk down the hall. And it's weird. It's like okay, you know, the rooms next to each other. We all checked in at the same time. We both stop at the same room and take out our keys. And I said, Dave, what's your number? And he gives me the number. I'm like, oh God, that's the room they also gave me. So we had to call down immediately and say, please bring up different keys. You screwed that up. Uh, no, uh, no snacks, nothing, nothing here at this area. Ben and I and Dave were not happy after the long day of travel. You guys aren't all in the same room. Come on. You guys could have shared you got bunk beds. Come on. <laughs> get it together. No, I didn't even let Ed drive the rental car this time. Oh, so you did it. Who did? I wasn't going to let him get, uh, stay in the same hotel as me. Wait, who drove the rental car? David Shane, he uh, swung by and picked uh, the two of us up from the Denver airport last night because our uh, flight got delayed about three times, including because our pilot didn't show up. So it's just been been a lovely 24 hours for us. What an upset. Ed, how could you let that happen? Well, I didn't because I will say this. Both of them were at the game the other night, and when we realized we have to go back to Denver because the Colorado hasn't shown up, we started booking all our planes and our flights, and immediately, I think Dave looked at Ben, and Dave said, I'll get the car. And uh, <laughs> I was X'd out right away. I, I will say this. I gave Ben a little glance. I mean, not to say he's in the same realm as myself, but and maybe he was mad, at, you know, because Dave actually flew through another. Ben and I came direct, and Dave flew through actually Montana yesterday. It took him like nine hours to get here. Um, Dave, let's just say that Dave exited that airport airport a little too fast for my liking. I'm like, yeah, you guys make fun of me. This kid's uh, he, he's trying to get the heck out of here as quickly as possible. Well, wait, did you guys make him stay in the airport and wait for you? No, he got delayed so much. He actually landed right around us, and he was supposed to be in there like a couple, two to three hours before us, but he was delayed so much we kind of, for some, whatever weird reason, we kind of hit the ground around the same time. Uh, I see. Poor, poor airplane problems for the review oh, journal. All right. All right, Ben. Um, here's the question we started this show with today is, do we really think the Golden Knights can keep this up against the Colorado Avalanche and continue to dominate them the way they have? Well, I think they can if the Avalanche don't adjust. That's the big question, right? Is that the Avalanche really haven't changed up their game plan too much the first four games this series. I made a comment to Ed after game four the other night that it feels like Colorado – kind of still thinks in the back of their mind that they're playing like the Ducks or the Sharks or one of the California teams, <laughs> but they had such an easy time blowing out and kind of running out of the building. I mean, they're trying to look for passes in the neutral zone that aren't there because the Knights are doing a good job clogging things up. They're creating a lot of turnovers that way, and even when they kind of kind of accept defeat and actually dump the puck into the offensive zone, they're doing it in a way that gives the Knights so much time and space that the Knights are just you know, flinging that puck around, and two passes later, they're headed back the other way. So Colorado kind of has to uh, show that it has kind of another uh, tool in its toolbox right now because we've seen kind of these big, skilled teams get eliminated early in the playoffs so far. I mean, the Oilers got swept. Uh, the Jets obviously got swept last night by the Montreal Canadiens. The Canadiens defeated the Toronto Maple Leafs in seven games. So these things can happen to these big, skilled teams. And we even saw it with the Tampa Bay Lightning two years ago when they won the President's Trophy and got swept by the Columbus Blue Jackets. So the style the Knights are playing, which is kind of, you know, simple, direct hockey station to station, not making a lot of mistakes and being willing to let the Avalanche make mistakes, which they have in bunches, is a formula for success in the playoffs. 
the Avalanche just have to show that they can make adjustments and beat that. The Tampa Bay Lightning of two years ago couldn't do that. The Tampa Bay Lightning of last year were able to do that and make adjustments and beat kind of a gritty defensive team like the New York Islanders in the semifinals. So, you know, that's the key question for me today is, are we going to see a different approach from the Avalanche, or are they going to keep kind of basically running their heads into the wall that is the Golden Knights in the neutral zone, and they're going to kind of live and die by that. And right now it sure seems like they're heading toward more of the uh, die angle than any other way. I mean, is this just take ton of credit to DeBoer? They figured it out, splitting eight games, outscoring them 18-17, completely close over the regular season. Is this just a cliche, like you just said, things change in playoff hockey, it's playoff hockey? Like, how is it this way when what we saw in the regular season when they were really essentially two even teams? Like, how has this happened the last two, the last eight periods, really, to where not only is Colorado not uh, uh, adjusting, but how dominant the Knights have been? It's weird how, like, a, a light switch was flipped. So, credit to the Knights, this actually was a little bit of what we saw during the regular season. I mean, Colorado scored the most goals per game in the NHL, but they scored their fewest goals per game against any opponent, against the Golden Knights. I mean, Colorado was only shut out twice the entire season. Both times were by the Golden Knights. So the Knights have kind of had this formula already. Now, I do think it gets taken to another level in the playoffs. One, because you get kind of greater defensive buy-in across the board because everyone knows that this is the time of year where you have to make checks, you have to block shots, all that stuff. The Knights had a lot of players doing that during the regular season, but it just gets taken up to another level in the playoffs where, you know, guys are less worried about how many points they're going to finish the season with. They're less worried about kind of their offensive statistics. And they can just focus on, all right, all we have to do today is win this hockey game. And then also there's obviously the thing of, you know, penalties don't uh, get called quite as often in the postseason. Uh, part of that uh, Oilers upset was the fact that Connor McDavid didn't draw a single penalty against the Winnipeg Jets. And the Knights, to their credit, the last two games at home uh, didn't take a lot of penalties. They took a bunch in Game 2, and that's kind of the only reason they ended up losing that game. But they've been very disciplined the past two games. And if they do that, they have a definite recipe for success against the Avalanche. So you got to give Pete DeVore credit for kind of implementing this game plan. But you also have to give the players a lot of credit for executing and all four lines for executing. Because the thing with the Avalanche is they still got that just nasty breakaway speed on some of their lines. So even one little mistake or one forced play from the Knights can lead to an odd man rush opportunity the other way. And, I mean, so far the Knights just haven't made a lot of mistakes throughout their lineup. And so the players deserve a lot of credit, too, because it sounds you know simple when you lay out the game plan, but executing it for you know three full periods is not as easy as it sounds when you're playing the game as fast as these guys play it. So... I mean, they've just been firing on all cylinders the past eight or so periods. All right. Forget about the actual game plan. Where Pete DeBoer deserves credit is calling out the Colorado Avalanche for embellishing in the first two games, right? I mean, the penalties have completely gone away. Like I've said, <laughs> it's been much more even the past two games. I'm sure uh, the home crowd obviously helped in that, too, because uh, the crowd at T-Mobile Arena, the capacity crowd, was giving the referees instant feedback on every call they made and didn't make, so that's a boost as well. Uh, we'll see if that changes at all now that Colorado's uh, crowd, which was also very lively when we were here for games one and two, uh, is going to be out in full force. But, 
I mean, it, certainly I think uh, Pete DeBoer knew what he was doing, and so far he's certainly gotten the results that he was hoping for. You, uh, We talked about it before the game the other night. Uh, you said you weren't surprised at all. You knew Reeves would go back in. Maybe a little surprised because no one really could figure out the protocol with McNabb. I thought that was weird where, is it 14 days? Is it 10 days? Is he okay to come back in? Well, he comes back in for Holden. Holden, I thought, had played well. Uh Talk about those two moves. You weren't surprised at Reese, but there were some out there saying, you know what, is this the best thing for them? Yeah, especially because the fourth line uh, with William Carrier, Patrick Brown, and uh, Keegan Kolasar for games two and three have played, I mean, really excellent hockey. They dominated the Avalanche's fourth line. I mean, Jared Bednar basically made two switches on his fourth line for game three because he didn't like how uh, those two lines matched up in game two. So there was some question there of like, well, Keegan Kolasar is not a guy that you want to take out of the lineup, and this unit has been working well. You really want to break it up. But I think Pete DeBoer has obviously too much respect for Ryan Reeves as a veteran and what he kind of brings to the lineup in terms of that big physical presence that can get guys fired up on the bench and maybe serve as a deterrent to any uh, after-whistle stuff, even though sometimes he's the one starting at after-whistle stuff. So I think there was probably no way Pete DeBoer wasn't putting Ryan Reeves back in the lineup, but it made sense to me to keep Keegan Colasar in because he had played well the previous two games, and then you bump Dylan Sakura to the press box. Uh, the McNabb one was obviously surprising, one, because we had only seen him that morning, and two, as you said, Nick Holden played really well, so I thought that was interesting. They were willing to just take Nick Holden straight out of the lineup. Now, McNabb was able to come back after 10 days because basically he needs to get cleared by a team physician and a cardiologist in order to uh, return after testing positive for COVID-19. Uh, clearly that happened. But, I mean, Nick Holden had five points in eight games, and he and Theodore were actually playing a lot at home against the McKinnon line and had done very well. So it was a little surprising that they didn't at least kind of find him a spot maybe lower in the lineup, maybe take out Nick Hegg. Um, but I thought Nick Hegg actually did play really well in game three as well, and he has kind of the offensive potential that you kind of like when you're forechecking as well as you are and really putting pressure on the Avalanche. We'll see if that stays for Game 5 now that the Avalanche are going to have last change and are controlling the matchups a little bit more. Maybe if you're Pete DeBoer, you're more willing to go with the veteran in Nick Holden compared to the young guy in Nick Hag. But I was very impressed with the Nav coming in right away and defending some of those top guys like uh, – McKinnon, Landis, Gogranton, and despite the fact that he had been on the shelf for basically 10 days. And uh, he hopped back in, and all of a sudden their penalty kill looked uh, pretty good for the first time all series. So I don't know if that's a coincidence, but certainly he seemed to be making an impact out there. Who scores first, Alex Petrangelo or Shea Theodore? That's a great question. Based on how the power play is going, I mean, Petrangelo's unit looked really good yesterday with all their puck movement. So if they keep getting it back to him and keep shooting, because he has been willing to take shots this series, he just hasn't gotten them to go in the net so far. So I want to say Petrangelo, he's got three more shots this series. And Shea Theodore, he's got one more point in the playoffs. And it does seem like he's being pretty aggressive, trying to pull the trigger on uh, some of these loose pucks. So I'm going to go with him. But it's interesting that, yeah, so far, like I said, uh, Alex Petrangelo has the same number of points as Nick Holden in three more games. So Nick <laughs> Holden has been the banner leader for offense on the blue line, and uh, now he possibly will be in the press box for a second straight game tonight. And they're two wins away from the conference. Well, what would have been the conference finals if it was a normal year? Exactly. Because hockey's weird, there... and sometimes you just can't explain things that happen. 
is there any chance Dave Shane remains unscathed in the car like I was in the previous trip? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, we'll see how we survive the trip to morning skate today. We've got about 20 <laughs> minutes on back roads to get to Ball Arena, <laughs> uh, everyone's favorite. Uh, we'll, we'll see how much we're white-knuckling it there, but it's going to be an adventure either way. Everyone just hop on a scooter. <laughs> yeah, get the scooter. Ed, we want video of you on a scooter. That's all we want from this trip. There's a good chance if Shane doesn't slow down, I'll be on a scooter. <laughs> well, he is Ben Goats from the Review Journal joining us from the same floor as Ed Graney in Denver. Ben, thank you very much. Thanks, man. No problem, guys. Okay. There you go. It, yeah. it is amazing. The Golden Knights right now, two wins away from being one of the final four teams playing in the NHL and looking like they're going to do it rather easily because the Avalanche can't do anything, and they have not gotten a single goal from Alex Petrangelo or Shea Theodore. Yeah. I'm more surprised, I guess, that Theodore, because I came to accept that Petrangelo really struggled <laughs> this year and, you know, the, 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 the contract and all that. And we kept saying, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with him? At first, it was like, no, he's just, you know, he's, a, you know, adjusting to a new t- town, new team and all that. I kind of gave up on that halfway through because I think he should he should have been adjusted. He played really well the other night, but I'm more surprised about Theodore. I've got to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, he was their leading scorer in the playoffs last year, and he hasn't yeah. done hardly anything offensively you got to put him so in a far. bubble. Yeah. All right, coming up next, Luke Perkdandy joins the show. We're checking in on the latest news from PropSwap, where smart sports bettors buy and sell sports bets. Go to PropSwap.com today and find the very best odds. Joining us now is Luke Perg Dandy. And Luke, I'm I'm curious. I've been asking about the Lakers for a long time, but a different LA team with the Clippers. Uh, they had to go to seven to get through the Mavericks. They were down 2-0 in that series, 3-2 in that series. They are playing the one seed jazz now. But what what has happened with Clippers tickets over the last couple of weeks in the playoffs? Yeah, a, a few people during that Dallas series, they did exit that, so they flipped them. Um because of that poor performance, they are now behind the Utah Jazz. Oswald, Jazz are about four to one. Clippers are around six to one currently. Um, so you know, Vegas oddsmakers did take notice of that and downgraded them because you know, they should have made much quicker work uh, of the Mavericks than they actually did. Luca, uh, some yeah, you know, some cool storylines in the West, whether it's Phoenix, whether it's Utah. Um, Denver, all these teams, you know, are are not, you know, usually there. It's always the Lakers, and, you know, and, and recently the Clippers. How are futures with some of these teams that are, are new to the party in terms of being, you know, uh, perhaps among the favorites to actually get this done? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the Phoenix Suns are just the, the perfect props off story this year. Open the season at 100 to 1 odds to win the NBA Finals. They outperformed the entire regular season. You know, everyone was saying this can't possibly continue. Every step, right? I mean, <laughs> they had the best record in the league, and, uh, you know, I believe they just eclipsed the Jazz, you know, January. Okay, Phoenix can't have a good February. February comes, okay, Phoenix can't have a good March. And here we are in June, and they look darn good. <laughs> that is, um, we cannot keep a Phoenix ticket, Phoenix Sun ticket on the shelf uh, to go from 100 to 1 down to, they're about 4 to 1 now, maybe plus 450. Um, so you could have made so much money buying and selling the Phoenix Suns all year long. Can you uh, find a buyer for Milwaukee Bucks tickets? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that uh, that series looks all but over. They're doing this without James Harden. I mean, Durant is just unguardable. Um, 
yeah, that, that Milwaukee Bucks team is, is pretty much done. Um, so to all people that didn't sell the Milwaukee Bucks ticket, probably should have props off that. But uh, uh, Brooklyn Nets now plus 120 to win the NBA Finals with three more series to go. Well, real, real quick, Luke, Montreal Canadiens, anything? Of, of course. We sold a $40 ticket on the Habs when they were down 3-1. to one. <laughs> oh, That $40 ticket is now worth $1,500 with the potential to pay for $10,000 on <laughs> wow. the team that hasn't lost in seven games in a row. Wow. Yeah. Well, now they're going to have about a week off and get to play either Colorado or Vegas. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, pretty good value to turn turn in on that ticket. He is 40, yeah, 40 bucks in the 1500 yeah. I'd say so. Yep, no questions asked. You can sell that right now. Well, he is Luke Perg-Dandy from PropSwap. Luke, as always, we appreciate it. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, guys. Bye. It's time to find the sharp. Brought to you by PropSwap, where smart sports bettors buy and sell sports bets. Go to PropSwap.com today and find the very best odds. All right, Jay is back for day three. He has gotten his first two picks right. So day three, we have a jersey to give away, but you got to get to nine, and it's a mystery jersey. You got to get to five just to find out what it is. So Jay, for pick number three, where do you want to go today? Okay, for pick number three, we're going to go with the Philadelphia 76ers money line. All right. We will give you the Sixers money line. They are playing the Hawks today at 430. All right. Good luck, Jay. If you win that, we'll be talking to you again tomorrow. All right. See you later. All right. So the Sixers. I am so depressed. I am so depressed Jay didn't parlay the Sixers with the Avalanche. (laughs) Yesterday he asked us to do a parlay when you just got to pick one game a day. If the Avalanche win, that means the series still hasn't started. That's, That's right. Point. That is a good point. Um, yeah, we still we don't have a series in this. Um, I hope they win in seven so we can say they ne- there was never <laughs> a never series. series. <laughs> it was never a series. <laughs> Didn't never happen. They just gave the Avalanche the win. Um, all right, Ed, I want to give you a couple of facts on Ole Miss baseball. Uh, they beat Southern Miss yesterday to win their regional and go to a super regional. First off, Doug Nikhazy, starting pitcher, he pitched on Saturday through 119 pitches. He came back and threw 20 pitches on Monday in relief. Not ideal. Uh, But Tim Elko is the captain of the Ole Miss team. He tore his ACL this year, missed about a month, came back. He's playing with one ACL. He had a grand slam and a solo home run yesterday. He hit two grand slams in the regional with one ACL. Well. It obviously means Ole Miss baseball players are a lot tougher than an MVP from the Dodgers. <laughs> How did you turn this into Bellinger? <laughs> Bellinger soft! 